Good day, my friends, and welcome to another Black History Moment with Bo. And if you should happen to be a first-time listener, I say welcome. Welcome to our show, a show about us. And I think you will like what you hear, because we're not a long show. We're just long enough for you to get to work or get to the barber shop, or get to the grocery store just long enough to hold your interest and give you something to think about for the rest of the day, something to talk about and share with other people. Because we are about the truth and facts, and we will crawl into the bowels of darkness and pull those stories and pull those people out and inform you about their contributions to our fight. Stories that whiteness does not want to be told. Facts that whiteness does not want to be revealed. Truths that we were never taught in school, but I promise you, if you listen to me, I will bring them to the light. And with that being said, my friends, let's slip into darkness and learn some truths. B.I. Ruskin spent years in the background of the shadows of the civil rights leader of the 1960s, despite being the man who taught, organized, and led them. Bayard Rustin was born on March the 17th, 1912, in Westchester, Pennsylvania. His father was a West Indian immigrant named Archie Hopkins, and his mother was Nancy Rustin. Until he was in his teens, he believed that Nancy was his sister, as he was raised by Nancy's parents. His grandfather, Janford Ruskin was a member of the local African Methodist Church, but his grandmother, Julia, had been raised a Quaker, and much of the Quaker philosophy guided him throughout his years. The Rustins were socially active in the NAACP and in black civil rights causes and counted among their personal friends such dignitaries as James Weldon Johnson and W.E.B. DeBose, whom they entertained in their home. And this association with notable figures and discussions of the rights of people led him to engage in activism at an early age. Rustin attended Wilberforce University, an historically black college in Ohio, operated by the AME Church. He was active in extracurricular activities on campus, including membership in the Omega Psi fraternity and in musical programs. He had received a music scholarship, but he left the school after four years without completing his exams. Later on, he attended Cheney State Teachers College in Pennsylvania and became affiliated with the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker-affiliated organization 
which worked for peace and social justice in the United States and around the world. He participated in one of the group's activist training programs and then moved to Harlem, New York in 1937 and enrolled in the City College of New York soon afterwards. He became a member of the Communist Youth League the previous year and joined with the Communist movement in trying to free the Scottsboro Boys a group of nine black men unfairly accused of raping two white women in Alabama. In later years, his communist affiliation would come back to haunt him. But in the 1930s, communist organizations were the only ones who tried to help black people in civil rights matters. Now, he was also a member of the Quaker group, the Religious Society of Friends. His life was a fury of activity, especially when one considers his age at the time. In addition to his activism, he still dabbled in music, where he was considered an accomplished tenor vocalist and sang on occasion with Paul Rubinson. The Communist Party USA had been active for years in the civil rights movement for blacks in the United States, and Rustin had worked with the group. But when Germany invaded the Soviet Union during World War II, the UPSA dropped their civil rights activities in order to focus on getting the United States into the war. Rustin had to move away from the organization but he began working with the Socialist Party where he became acquainted with A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Randolph was one of the top civil rights workers in the United States, having fought on behalf of the Pullman train porters seeking better wages and working conditions. He also became acquainted with A.J. Mest, one of the heads of the pacifist group, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. The three of them had long discussions about the state of civil rights in the United States and decided to band together to take on racial discrimination in the U.S. Armed Forces. They planned to organize a march on Washington to force President Franklin Roosevelt to take action in desegregating the military and the defense industry. And they got what they wanted because Roosevelt agreed and issued Executive Order 8802, which banned discrimination, not only in the military and defense industries, but also in all federal agencies. Now, friends, this was a remarkable moment in the civil rights movement, but it seemed to go unnoticed. It was put into the darkness, but it demonstrated Rustin's talents in organizing and managing events that would make him invaluable years later. During World War II, the United States engaged in the very controversial program of Japanese-American internment. Leery of spies for the Empire of Japan existing in the west coast of the United States, 
President Roosevelt authorized the incarceration of approximately 120,000 people of Japanese descent in government internment camps, despite the fact that two-thirds of them were American citizens. Rustin took up the cause to help protect the property belonging to the internees while they were kept in camps. Rustin traveled by bus from Louisville, Kentucky to Nashville, Tennessee, and he sat in the second row of the bus. He was asked by several drivers to get out of his seat and move to the back of the bus so a white person could sit in it, a practice common on buses in the South. When Ruskin refused, he was arrested miles before his destination and was beaten by the police and dragged off to jail. They let him go without charging him, but his act of defiance happened in 1942, a full 13 years before Rosa Parks gained fame through her similar refusal. But this was not Ruskin's only brush with the law. Later in 1942, Ruskin aided James L. Farmer and George Hauser in creating the Congress for Racial Equality, CORE, a pacifist organization aimed at using the nonviolent resistance teachings of Gandhi in civil rights violations. As a pacifist, Rustin and many of the people he worked with in FOR and CORE refused induction into the United States military, and he was convicted of violating the Selective Service Act and was sentenced to spend two years in Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. But you know what, my friends? In spite of being incarcerated, he still organized protests this time against segregation in the prison's dining facilities. He also began to aid FOR while he was in prison, notably in helping to organize protests against British colonial rule in India. After being released from prison, he was arrested several times for protesting against colonial rule, not only in India, but also in Africa. Now, now, as you listen to this, con- consider that this was a black man taking on national and world issues during the post-war United States. Also think about this was a period in which the Cold War started pitting the United States, now considered the world leader in democracy, against the Soviet Union, the dominant force of communism in the world. For Rustin, a former communist and now socialist, to be taking on the United States and the British government would seem to be reckless to his personal well-being as well as political suicide for his reputation. Finally, consider that he was a homosexual in the conservative years of the Truman-Eisenhower administration, and it's almost unimaginable the level of determination, confidence, and bravery that he possessed in battling the system when he faced the possibility of personal attacks on so many fronts. But still, my man marched on, 
1947, Ruskin joined with core founder George Hauser in organizing the journey of reconciliation. It was a nonviolent form of direct action challenging segregation laws on interstate buses in the American South. One year earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the Irene Morgan versus the Commonwealth of Virginia that segregation in interstate travel violated the Constitution of the United States. Some of the southern states were refusing to comply with the court's ruling, so the journey of the reconciliation was devised as a way to directly challenge the segregation and provoke a response from southern law enforcement and legislators. Sixteen male members of Corps were recruited to ride throughout the Upper South, composed of eight black men and eight white men, They ranged in professions from biologists to social workers to students. And on the rides, the black men rode in the front of the bus and the whites rode in the back, with black and whites sitting next to each other on occasion. Several of the riders were arrested, including Ruskin, who served 22 days on a chain gang. The white riders faced even worse punishment North Carolina Judge Henry Whitfield told the white men involved, and I quote, It's about time you Jews from New York learned that you can't come down here bringing your niggers with you to upset the customs of the South just to teach you a lesson. I gave your black boys 30 days on a chain gang, and I give you 90. Can you imagine a United States judge spitting that venom? Journey of Reconciliation was a precursor not only to the freedom riders that would take place more than a decade later, but also to other direct action protests that helped to launch the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Lunch counter demonstration, and enrollment in public state universities, for instance. In 1948, Ruskin traveled to India to get hands-on training on the concept of nonviolent civil resistance. He learned directly from disciples of Gandhi, whom had been murdered earlier in the year. Over the next few years, he traveled to numerous countries, helping to develop movements to promote independence. He also created the Committee to Support South African Resistance in 1951. In spite of his growing statue in the field of civil rights, Rustin hit a roadblock in 1953 that could have derailed the rest of his career. He was arrested in Pasadena, California, or in charge with vagrancy and lewd conduct after he was found in a car with two men. He plea bargained and served 60 days in a California jail. Soon thereafter, he was fired by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, but was hired by the War Resisters League to serve as the organization's executive secretary. In 1956, Ruskin made a decision that would help to change American history. He became aware of the rising popularity of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
and his work in leading the Montgomery bus boycott. He sought out the 25-year-old king to impress upon him the need to utilize a strategy of nonviolent action in regard to protests. At that time, Dr. King was protected by armed bodyguards, and he kept a personal handgun in his home. Rustin taught King many of the philosophies that he'd learned from his experiences in India, learning from Gandhi's disciples. King eventually saw the merit in the nonviolent philosophy, and the two began working closely together. In January 1957, Ruskin worked with King as well as Joseph Lowry, Fred Shuttlesworth, and Ralph Abernathy and founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Through all his work, Ruskin had gained a number of highly influential friends in the civil rights movement, but he gained a number of enemies as well, and they were not above using his sexual orientation or his communist past against him. Ruston had been very candid about his sexual orientation, and his arrest in California was a matter of public record, but most of the general public was unaware of it. All of this changed in the 1960s as Ruston and King were pushing for a stronger civil rights platform at the 1960 Democratic Convention. Planning a boycott of it by followers Adam Clayton Powell Jr., then the most powerful black politician in the United States, heard about this and was furious, in part because he felt that King's accession to the political world would undermine his own power and influence. He threatened to expose Rustin's past to the general public and further threatened to accuse King and Ruskin of having a sexual affair if they did not call an end to the demonstration. And King caved in to the threat and asked Ruskin to resign from the movement. Ruskin did so for the sake of the movement and was relegated to working behind the scenes for years to come. And despite Powell's blackmailing of him. Years later, Ruskin would come to the congressman's aid when the House of Representatives sought to impeach Powell. It was not the last time that his past would be used against him and against the civil rights movement. In 1963, Ruskin and A. Philip Randolph announced they were going to organize a demonstration in the nation's capital. Washington, D.C. They recruited unions to participate in the march and got varying levels of support. They then reached out to the Council for the United Civil Rights Leaders, represented by the heads of the six major civil rights organizations, including Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, James Farmer, the head of CORE, John Lewis, the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, King, then led by the SCLC, Roy Wilkins, president of the NAACP, and Whitney Young, the president of the National Urban League. At the onset, Wilkins and Young spoke out against Rustin heading the march effort. Worried about his past being used to sabotage the effort, the decision was made, therefore, for Randolph to lead the march, and Reston 
was relegated to the position of deputy organizer. That position was in name only as Ruskin had a hand in everything from the mobilization of publicity campaigners and the recruitment of marchers to arranging the bus schedules to selecting the order for the speakers to deciding on the number of bathrooms to secure for the event. In the days preceding the march, several participants, including King and Wilkins, received death threats, and the Los Angeles Times received a bomb threat stating that its headquarters would be blown up unless it printed a message on its front page calling President Kennedy a nigger lover. Little by little things came together as the day approached, but many in Washington were determined to derail the demonstration. J. Edgar Hoover was convinced that the march was planned and run by the Communist Party, and he passed information about Rustin's past to segregationist Senator Strom Thurmond. Thurmond declared Ruskin to be a communist draft dodger and homosexual and tried to imply that Ruskin and King were involved in a sexual relationship. Whereas many of the black leaders had earlier tried to distance themselves and the movement away from Ruskin against a racist like Thurmond, they all allied and they closed ranks around Rustin and Thurman's bluster amounted to very little. On the day of the march, saboteurs disabled the speaker system set up for the crowd. Unable to get it repaired, Walter Fauntroy, a delegate in the United States Congress, contacted Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, requesting assistance, saying, We have a couple hundred thousand people coming. Do you want a fight here tomorrow after all we've done? The U.S. Army Signal Corps was dispatched to fix the system and had it repaired by the next day. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom took place on August the 28th. 1963. Approximately 250,000 people attended the march, about 60,000 of them white. The last speech was given by Martin Luther King, and he addressed the crowd with his I Have a Dream speech. The event ended with Rustin reading aloud the list of goals and Randolph joining him to ask the attendees to keep up the fight for racial and economic equality. Bayard Ruskin was a man behind the scenes who ran the program, and he died on August the 24th, 1987, from a perforated appendix. He was survived by his partner of 10 years, Walter Nagel. For all of his influence and impact on human rights, his sexual orientation still caused even his memory to hide in the background. In 2013, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama, the highest civilian award of the United States. Though he was forced to live much of his career in shadows that obscured his contributions and accomplishments, history is beginning to paint a new portrait of him. 
recognizing his role in changing American society and serving as a great black hero. My friends, I know I have ran over my time slot, but I just had to finish as much of this story as I could. And that music tells me that I am well beyond my time. But before I go, I want to leave you with this little message. Some people can pinpoint everything wrong about you, but when it comes to correcting themselves, the damn pen don't work. Until next time, it's been my honor.